It's the e-commerce master plan podcast here to help you grow your e-commerce business faster and more efficiently by cutting through the hype to bring you inspiration and guidance from the e-commerce sector and beyond. Here's your host, Chloe Thomas. Hello, Master Plan World. Welcome to our latest podcast. It's awesome to have you all out there listening. I'm Chloe Thomas, the creator of the e-commerce master plan. I'm an author, speaker and advisor, and I focus on e-commerce marketing. A few weeks ago, back in episode 150, we got deep into the world of content marketing with specialist Jacqueline Parisi from HelloFresh USA. Today, we're going to do another expert deep dive, this time into the physical side of your offering. We're talking POS, which is point of sale, so that's the physical retail world, and also packaging. So I'm going to introduce you to our special guest today. Uh, Greg Corey earned his retail stripes with 10 years at Home Depot and for the last 15 years has been running marketing agency Porchlight. Porchlight's a full service agency so Greg gets involved with the whole marketing mix but today we're going to try and focus on point of sale, how you get your customers to take your product off the physical shelf in your physical stores and others' physical stores, plus the power of product packaging, a subject that, in my opinion, does not get anywhere near enough airtime. Hello, Greg. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Great to have you on. Now, I've given our listeners like a super simple overview of what you're up to and your specialities. But before we get deep into those, how did you first get started in e-commerce and retail? Yeah, so the... um... The, the this quick version, I guess, of the story is that uh, right out of college, I started working for the Home Depot um, in their marketing and advertising department. Uh, and then, and that was actually in Tampa, Florida. And then after about four or five years there, uh, Home Depot moved me to Atlanta, Georgia, where I continued to work in their marketing and advertising department and just got exposed to a lot of uh, different areas or sides of the marketing uh, and advertising business. Um, after about 10 years, I thought it was about time to, to move and jump ship. And so I actually went to work for Newell Rubbermaid. Uh, Newell Rubbermaid was actually a vendor of Home Depot. So I actually got the benefit of seeing, you know, while I was at Home Depot, the merchandising or the, the retailer side of things. And then when I went to Newell, I got to the fortunate um, advantage of seeing the manufacturer side of things. Uh, but then after Newell, uh, that kind of ran its course. They actually wanted to move our office to to a different city and state, and I decided I wanted to stay here in Atlanta. And so I just started freelancing, uh, freelancing, just doing side business, side jobs uh, as they came. And, um, you know, that got really busy. And so instead of having enough work to keep myself busy, I was actually having to call some friends and try to, in the design community, and say, hey, I need some help with these projects. And uh, kind of organically, 15 years later, uh, Porchlight's still here, and, and we serve that community. We serve the packaging and retail uh, community. We really focus on home improvement, but we also dabble in some other areas as well. Oh, cool. And um, so you, you kind of, in some ways, went, went hunter-turned-gamekeeper-turned-another-form-of-gamekeeper, because you went from the, the retailer who's buying in the product to the person who's creating the product, and then to the marketing agency supporting all of them. That's true. I do get to see, I have seen all kind of three sides. And so I actually think that gives me a really interesting perspective because I can see challenges that each face. You know, I understand what the agency has to go through to learn about the product and become kind of the brand stewards and understand that they, they get the branding correct and that we understand what they're trying to accomplish. But then on the other side is I understand what the retailer is looking for, right? They have a whole another list of 
of concerns. I mean, you know, does everybody any wonder why, you know, when you look at a shelf in any retail environment, there's no spaces between the products, you know, all, all the different sizes of packaging and all the different sizes of products that sit on the shelf. And, you know, that shelf space is measured down to the, you know, the, the, the you know, the, the inch or even less. Um, so that space is extremely critical. So we, we love to hear what the retailer has to say and the way that they understand their business. And then the other side is the manufacturer, the brand owner. I mean, nobody knows their product like they do. And so it's really interesting. And I love being on the side because I get to hear both of those stories uh, from each of their perspectives. And when it all comes together, you know, it's amazing. I guess it, you, when you're saying about everything being measured to the nearest millimeter just makes me think that, think of, you know, you occasionally come across those business owners, you know, fresh business owners with a great idea for a product who have this crazy idea for like a hexagonal shaped box or, you know, something and you, you think, yes, that would stand out, but no one is going to find space for that because that's, you know, in, in my world, normally that's, that's going to be a nightmare to get delivered. Um, but also it's that physical space on the shelf, isn't it? It's like you take up twice as much space as your nearest competitor. Why? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and that, and that's again, where, where in a sense we're trying to help these people because they may think they have the best idea and maybe it is a really good idea, but the challenge is, you know, anybody can have a great idea, but if you can't sell that in, then, then, then it's not necessarily going to go anywhere. And that's, that's part of where we try to help brand owners or manufacturers is to, to make sure that, that I guess one of the biggest things that we try to help them with is to understand that there's, there's multiple sales calls that have to go on, right? You have to sell it to the retailer first. And then after you sell it to the retailer, then we have to sell it to the consumer. I know a lot of people always talk about the consumer, the end user, you know, do what's right for the consumer. And of course, that's, that's your goal and strategy. But there's a pretty big hurdle before you even can think about the consumer in a sense is that make sure that the retailer has a need for it to put it on the shelf. So I would have assumed that when it comes to kind of the physical product that's going to sit on that shelf, the retailer and the customer's goals are pretty much the same? Or have you got to tick different boxes for each? You know, I think you have to tick different boxes for each. Um, I think a lot of times those those boxes are going to line up and that the, the retailer does need or has a certain need to fill uh, for a certain consumer. But the other side too is that that maybe the retailer is not necessarily looking for the best product ever invented, right? <laughs> maybe the retailer has a need that says, hey, we're looking for uh, an entry-level priced item. We need something that gets them in the $5 range or $10 range or, or just the opposite. Maybe we're looking for something that is the best of the best and that it is premium. And so... I think from the brand owner's perspective, they have to understand if they're pitching or trying to sell their product into a retailer, that, that retailer has needs as well. Almost the exact same process is what we would do with a consumer. So where does this fit in the needs of the consumer? Is a consumer buying this just because they have to have it or they have a specific need? Or is it a desire, emotional need or, or something along that line versus utilitarian or commodity type of, of need. And so I think both of those have this. So they, they, so I hope I didn't confuse you, but I do think that the boxes can line up, but I also think that they can definitely be different. Yeah, I, I get what you mean. It's like the, the, con 
you know what you're going to put there which which makes the the end consumer want to buy it is essential for both because quite frankly the retailer might place the first order but if the end consumer doesn't doesn't um buy it then they're not going to place a second and that's you know when the money starts really rolling in but yes. but that the but that the retailer has a whole range they want to fit you in somewhere they've got a hole literally in some cases they've got a hole on the shelf that they need to fill and they know what the price point should be they know what the what the packaging should be so i guess let me let me put a put a kind of a case study esque question to you if you were advising and let's go for coffee because everyone seems to be creating their own brand of coffee at the moment <laughs> so apologies if you're going oh god she said coffee um, no, sorry. It's, it's, it's either coffee or alcohol, so it's yeah. okay. <laughs> so uh, we'll we'll go with the coffee because you know for you it's early in the morning. So we'll we'll go we'll go coffee. Um, so if someone's got someone's come to you to help them get the the product, the look and feel of the product, I suppose that physical presence of the product right to get it into say Walmart, you know, a big supermarket place. How much of the time do you spend advising them before they start talking to the retailer, or how much time would would you know would Walmart spend going if you could tweak this, this, and this? Uh, so without being too political in a sense, uh, you know, without trying to go right down the middle, but basically, it really depends. It, it really does. It's a fifty fifty split, and and there's there's two ways that we've seen it happen. Um, so in one hand, if you're a if you're a national brand, right? So if you're a national brand coming to to an agency or coming to a retailer saying, we want to get this product on the shelf, they may not have to do a lot of concessions. They may not have to make a lot of changes, right? They've got the they've got the clout, they've got the presence and things of that. So and, and if the, the track company, record quite fundamentally. Right, they've got a track record, yeah. right? So if you're a small independent coffee brand and you're trying to break way and you're talking to Walmart to get on the shelf, um, there's two approaches and we talk about these approaches. There's, so there's one approach where we button up everything that they have. We button up their branding, we button up their, uh, packaging, we do mock-ups, we tell them how many are going to fit in a case. And we say, we're going to have two facings. So that's two products, the same side by side on the shelf. And this is how we're going to merchandise it. Uh, and we go to them with this entire kind of, finished package right or finished everything this is what we're going to do this is how much it's going to cost do you want to buy it right and that's a strategy mm -hmm. the other strategy could be where we go in with a lot of what ifs right so we say walmart we have a product it's a really good quality product we can package it like this or we can package it like this uh here are some creative executions we've explored and so that strategy says hey Walmart, we're, we're wanting you to partner with us. We really want you to put our product on the shelf. And so we're hoping that you could have some ownership on how the, the creative looks or how the merchandising is put together. And do you want a five pound bag or do you want a one pound bag? And so it is different. So it just depends on, on what the strategy that the brand owner wants to approach. Um, but both have uh, pros and cons. I suppose it's it's um in the, my coffee example, which I'm assuming is quite a crowded marketplace, to be going in with the the fate accompli, the here it is, it's done, that first option is more likely to work. Whereas if you're going in with something, okay, everyone's now obsessed with um, I don't know, spiralizing or courgettes or, you know, some new crazy type of vegetable that we're eating to replace pasta, then that is where you go in with the conversation because you need a bit more information on the customer or am I oversimplifying things? No, I think you're absolutely right. 
Absolutely. Oh, I like it when I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so we've got we've got that product packaging that we've got ready for the retailer. Um, we've kind of explored that bit. How about for the um, the end consumer? How how can someone get that packaging right so that the consumer picks their product, not the one that sat next to it on that shelf? Because it's a really competitive place, the, the physical store shelf. Yeah, that's you know that that's the challenge, right? That's the that's the the million dollar question is how do we get so if we if we pass the hurdle of the retailer. And we actually get our product on the shelf, which is which is no small feat. How do we then make sure that consumers want to gravitate? And so, you know, there's lots of things that we can do. But one of the there's a couple of things that we do like to do uh, mm-hmm. to really try to figure that out. And, and one is kind of a simple question, but it's talk to consumers, right? And so, however you do that, whether you want to spend large money and hire a, a research agency and do a cross country, you know. Uh, you know, analysis on what they mm-hmm. like and what they don't like and measure it and all that kind of stuff. Or it's simply just, you know, standing in the aisle of a, like you said earlier, a Walmart and, and seeing what people are gravitating towards and looking at the competition and seeing and understanding the, the void uh, of what might be missing and how your product can fill that space. Um, and so those are some of the, the basic things. But I think, you know, it's really understanding who's buying it and why they're buying it is, is you know, sometimes goes underestimated, right? It's almost like, well, if I just put it on the shelf, it'll sell. And we've seen that that strategy fail a lot. So I guess from that customer research, you're then going to understand what wording they're using, the customer's using to talk about the product, and that's the wording you want on the front. So you, you kind of, you go straight in for those benefits and the right phrasing. Yeah, I mean, as a creative uh, or a, a trained creative, it's sometimes um, taboo to say that I love seeing and hearing research and what consumers <laughs> say. But if we do have some research and we have some thoughts on exactly what consumers are looking at and what they're thinking, for me as a creative, it's easier because I don't have to think or guess. I mean, it's it's right there in front of me. I can totally understand that. You know, you know, if we take your coffee example, that that do I know what farm these beans came from? Do I know what country? Is that important? You know, we may think it looks great to put a picture of a farmer with dirty hands on the cover of a coffee bag and say that this is, you know, this coffee has come from somewhere else, but do coffee drinkers really care where that comes from? Uh, And that's an interesting, uh, you know, an interesting question to to ask and have answered. I was like, Um, if if you're, target customer for that coffee is the person who's trying to wean themselves off Red Bull, then your packaging is going to be very different than the target customer who likes going to the theatre and wants to have the best possible artisan coffee. Price points might not be that different, but the the way in which you attract them to your package of coffee is going to be very different, isn't it? Absolutely. Yes. Again, you're right. You've done this before. <laughs> oh, trust me. I was whilst we were prepared, whilst I was preparing for this interview, I was thinking about how when I, you know, times I've actually been involved in product packaging and point of sale, and my primary memory is sitting next to someone at Pastimes, which was a UK high street retailer. I looked after the the online and the catalogue side, and she looked after the retail side, and the endless hours she spent signing off shelf tickets. And I was like, <laughs> "Yeah, that's not a good topic for today. Let's we'll try and avoid the shelf tickets." But oh. no, I, it's uh, yeah, fascinating stuff. Or not not so much the shelf tickets though. 
Um, so, oh, I got I got got myself well off track there. Sorry, listeners. I'm sorry. I will, yeah. I, will, I, I, I took you down that road. Sorry I will that. try and get us back on track. So then once the customers bought the product, they've seen, you know, the packaging got it and the, and the whole uh, the whole proposition got it into the retail store. The packaging has then attracted the customer to put it in their basket. And of course, what is that packaging's job then to make sure they buy that product again? And this is where it starts coming into the online sphere as well, because I know a lot of our listeners, they are selling on Amazon or eBay where there's restrictions about what marketing you can do to the customer. But of course, they'd love that person to come back and buy direct. And that's where product packaging can have a role as well. So how do you how do you build that into the product packaging? Is it even a consideration on day one or is it get that first sale and hope they just love the product? No, it's it's definitely a consideration. I think what we see here is a lot of times it's a consideration, but sometimes depending on the brand owner and what, what their level of, of expectation and how far they want to think it through, that that sometimes it may get put on the on the back burner. It may not be top of mind. But as creatives, we are thinking about that, right? So is this a package that is going to um, so if this is a primary packaging, so we take your coffee example. So mm-hmm. what happens when, when I do take that coffee bag home? Uh, and again, this goes a little bit more in, into research. And so what does the consumer do with their coffee? Do they, do they open this bag and dump the coffee into some other container that then sits on their counter? Uh, and then they throw away the, the primary packaging or are we, building the bag or the packaging or the primary packaging to to be used as some type of dispensing unit, right? So, or so that they don't throw it away. Um, you know, those are some things that we can think about. And maybe coffee is, is a different example. Um, but there's other examples as well where the, the packaging itself actually lives in the home. And so I think for those categories, you really need to think about how, how it looks and feels and then, and then go, you know, how it interacts with the person at inside their home because they've actually brought it into their home. To make sure they're getting that brand being reiterated to them again and again and again, I suppose. Right, exactly. And do you do much in the way of kind of calls to action on the product packaging, like follow us on Facebook or Twitter or here's our website URL, enter our survey to win a prize and, and that kind of like proactive data capture side of things? You know, I think... Um, not today. We're not, we're not putting that type of promotional messaging on packaging. I mean, we are mentioning, you know, mm-hmm. Hey, Facebook, find us for more information on Facebook or, you know, find us here for more information or here's our website address and things of that nature, almost as a, as a sense of replacing the 1-800 customer service yeah. uh, call. So we, we transition from, Hey, if you need more information, would like more information, see us here. Uh, more in the home improvement space, we're, we're doing a little bit more of that, say, in the instructions or in the instruction booklet. If you have to, you know, say, assemble a shelving unit or you're unpacking, say, a cordless tool or a drill or something that would have instructions, uh, but not so much on the, the basic packaging uh, as, as far as shouting that message. Um, one thing that we are seeing, though, is, you know, a, a, an emerging trend uh, it's going slow, but it but it's coming. Is the is the you know I'm sure you've seen the the QR codes and everything mm-hmm. kind of come and go, um, but now what you're seeing is the 
the photographs you can actually take once the package is designed, that entire package then becomes almost a QR code uh, for a means of getting to a website or a video or for more information. Um, so in a sense, you'd be able to literally take a picture with your, with your phone uh, of the package and then that would then bounce you to wherever the brand owner would want you to go, whether it's, a, like I said, a video, an instruction uh, uh, sheet that says, hey, this is how to assemble it or anything really that they wanted to do. And that's kind of fun. That's something that's going to be interesting to see. Uh, evolve over the over the next years. Well, yeah, that's that's quite cool because then it could be like, oh, you've you've bought this coffee. You can do more with it than just coffee. Here's some recipes. And th- at this point, the coffee example starts not to really work. But you know, you could have here's a video of how to put together this flat pack furniture, or here's some ways to use this product you just just bought. Absolutely. Even if it's the farmer, here's a story of the farm and the farmer that, that oh, yeah. you know grew these coffee beans. Absolutely it depends on the the emotional connection or the instructions or informations that the brand owner wants to give to the end consumer and that's literally just photographing the packaging and through you Mm -hmm. go absolutely and then and then that even has uh so we've talked a little bit at the beginning about how how these things kind of help the retailer so in a sense if you go back to actually i think in the uk you have um is it wegmans who's in the uk i don't think so in terms of supermarkets yeah, uh, we got Tesco and Sainsbury's and ASDA. Tesco, so maybe I'm not sure about this. So maybe, uh, so take the other, so take the barcode, right? So mm-hmm. imagine the barcode on the package, right? So whenever you go to the retail store, you have to make sure that the barcode lines up with the scanner, and that it scans through the register to get your price and to get out smoothly. It works great when it works, but then all of a sudden, if that barcode for some reason, you know, has a hiccup, that kind of slows the process down. Or if it's a very large item and the barcode's on the bottom and you have to pick it up and lug it and turn it around. Well, today, that same technology, you can scan the entire package anywhere on the package. It does not have to be a black and white barcode uh, to be able to get that information into the register of the point of sale system at the retailer, which speeds things up. So that's another area and a different point of view. So one way that code can help the retailer speed checkout and efficiencies uh, as well as help provide more information to the consumer once they get home. Very cool. And you've um, by going into that trend, you've uh, you've preempted my my last question on all this, which yeah. is: Are there any key industry trends we should be aware of in terms of what's going on in the world of packaging at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I mean, that's a big one, right? That's a big mm-hmm. one right there. So, smart packaging is 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 coming. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see kind of where that takes off and then how we adapt that to consumers. Uh, there's a lot of other avenues that that's taken as well. Um, sorry, Greg, that smart packaging is this scannable package basically. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes, it is. That's a part of it. Yes. Um, so there's other things you can do too with, with, you know, tracking the package. You can actually track it and find out, you know, exactly you can, you know, chain of custody if somebody wants to know exactly where that package started from and where where it was shipped to and what retailer and, and things of that nature. So you can actually track the the, the, the package through its life cycle uh, all the way down to after it's been, you know, disposed of. Um, in the, um, uh, you know, in the olive green, uh, in the um, uh, olive oil market and things of like wines to be counterfeiting and things of, in a sense of uh, authenticity, um, there's ways to, to ensure that with, with smart packaging as well. 
um, with embedded codes and, and, and things inside RFID chips and things inside the labels. Um, it, it's all a very, very interesting kind of, kind of, new avenue or trend or, or even just transformation that packaging is going to come to. So basically it's making the packaging work even harder than what it does today by just protecting or being a billboard for a consumer. Cool. And uh, I guess something we're seeing in the UK as a, as a trend seems to be people wanting a more, a greener style of packaging, you know, a bit more eco-friendly, be that in terms of less packaging or in terms of recyclable or biodegradable packaging is that something you're seeing happening more and more yeah absolutely with with the with the onslaught of amazon and the right size packaging mm-hmm. uh and the ability to have a packaging that is is easier to ship and has a lot less material i mean if you think about today let's take um let's change your coffee example to to some some crazy thing like toy packaging right toy yeah. packaging is really meant today to to advertise the toy to show the toy to the consumer and all of the pieces all spread out so that they can see the you know the 15 pieces that comes with the toy mm-hmm. and everything is in a in a clamshell which is wrapped in in a box and then put together with all the zip ties and the wire it's very difficult to open toy packaging well if imagine that package if it didn't have to be on displayed on the retail shelf right you could substantially reduce your packaging size therefore making that package you know, much, much smaller. Uh, and then that would makes it much easier to ship. Um, so oh, of I course think it, it wouldn't need to be see-through. So you can do the whole thing out of card without the plus plastic element. That makes a huge difference, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a massive difference. Absolutely. So with toy retailers now creating two packages, one for physical store, one for online. I mean, that's what we're seeing right now. And wow. so much so that we are, we're not necessarily an Amazon expert, but I do believe Amazon, if, if the package has to be, Amazon has certain specs for shipping e-commerce and mm-hmm. shipping things online. And so if those, if your package, if you're uh, a, a seller or reseller at Amazon and your package doesn't necessarily meet the, their specs, they will repack your item and charge you for it. So it's, um, it's something definitely you should be looking at, right? Absolutely. That, that how do you right-size packaging? And that's like losing out on every front, isn't it? You paid for the packaging in the first place. Now Amazon's thrown it in the bin and they've repacked it and all your branding's gone. It's that's like right. Losing yes, on so every I believe, front. you know, if it's, a, uh, if it's a liquid or anything like that, Amazon, if it doesn't come in kind of a, a, a plastic kind of Ziploc type bag, they will add that to it. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely... Uh, you're right. It does lose out. You have to pay for it twice. Wow. Okay. Uh, I think it's time we go into the top tips round now. And I love this section because it gives me and our listeners some really quick ideas for taking our businesses to the next level. So, Greg, first up is the book top tip. Oh, and I should say you can now go outside the world of packaging into your huge knowledge of e-commerce and retail for the rest of this. Um, okay, okay. The book top tip. If everyone listening to this podcast agreed to take Friday off and read a book to make their business better, which book would you recommend? Oh, wow. But focus on the business. I would say, you know, I read a, a good book. Um, and, and let me confess, I almost feel like I'm lying to you. I don't read a lot anymore. I listen to podcasts and I listen to mm-hmm. audiobooks. So I'm not sure if listening to a book counts as reading a book. But, definitely uh, counts. It definitely counts. It definitely counts. Okay. Um, essentialism. I'm not sure if you've heard that one. Um, would that be Mr. the lovely Mr. Greg McKeown? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, oh, I so, love that book. 
it's a really, I try, it's, it's diff, you know, he has some great advice in the book, but it's, it's, it's not easy to do. <laughs> um, there, there's one mention in it, and I'll just plug this. If you've heard this, if you've read it, maybe you'll remember it. And I, and I don't know exactly who said it, so um, forgive me. But um, in that book, they said something to the effect, if it's not, and excuse my language, if it's not a hell no, I mean, if it's not a hell yes, it's a no. Yeah. And I, I feel like in the essentialism world, trying to really uh, streamline clutter and make decisions um, I tell myself that a lot lately and it, even, even it's hard to make that decision, but I, I don't know. I, that just stuck with me. I think you've, uh, you've just, you've just convinced me I need to have another read of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. The traffic top tip next then, which marketing method do you either prize above all others or think doesn't get the press it deserves? So let's see, Facebook just changed some of their algorithms. So I'm not sure if this still applies, but we, loved seeing when it comes to kind of e-commerce and background we loved um facebook's lookalike audiences so that was a it's a it's interesting to have uh so i'm not sure if your read your listeners are gonna maybe follow me so i'll explain quickly but in facebook you can do some things where you import uh you know, names, titles, addresses, email addresses of a, uh, of your targets right that you have uh and then um, even job titles or companies. And then Facebook will then create a new list based on their algorithms on the list that you imported. So you'll end up with two different lists of targets. And we love targeting uh, to each of those and then seeing which one performs better. So Facebook's lookalike audience is, is, is an interesting tool. Oh, yeah. And it's very much still there as well. Yeah. Love a bit yeah. of lookalikes. Okay, the tool top tip. This might be a collaboration tool, a social media plugin, a phone app, or just a way of working. Is there a cool little tool you use that makes you and your team more efficient from day to day? Oh, we have so many tools. Probably <laughs> too many. I mean, on the social media side, we probably use, uh, you know, we use a couple of different tools. So we use um, the social media social media um, aggregator. So we use Sprout Social, mm-hmm. uh, Hootsuite. I mean, those are phenomenal because that allows you to have one program that can feed all your social media channels into. So you're not constantly logging into Facebook, logging into Twitter, uh, you know, going back and forth. So, I mean, that's a, that's a huge tool. If you're doing a, a larger volume, if it's just one brand, then maybe it's not necessarily, but if you, if you're having to manage several, that's a good one. Um, for our day-to-day business here, we use a program called Harvest, which helps keep track of all of our clients and all of our estimates and all of our our time and material expenses, uh, which is a nice online tool. We can use it anywhere with our phones, on the desktop, laptops, all the way around. Oh, so, some great oh. recommendations there. Thank you. Yeah, uh, sure. And the last top tip is the growth top tip. If you met someone today who's focused on growing their e-commerce business from 100 orders per month to 1,000, what would be your number one tip for them? Number one tip. I think when it comes to e-commerce, you have to dive into the statistics. You have to figure out. So in your analogy, you said 100. So if they're getting 100, my first question would be, where are those 100 coming from today? Um, you know, understanding where your market's coming from. In other words, did you get that hundred from uh, a newspaper article or uh, an online article, a PR article that, that 
was published. Did you get that because one person published a great review and people are reading the review and then they're going right to your site uh, to purchase your item? So it's diving into to the to the back end the statistics, knowing where the traffic's coming from. Was it organic search or was it paid search? Was it a free piece of media or paid media? And then once you understand where that comes from, then capitalize on that. Try to figure out exactly how you can expand on that and to grow that from 100 to the 1,000. Great advice. And I have to say, personally, I like nothing more than diving into someone's analytics to try and answer that very question. Yeah. I would happily lose days of my life to doing that. <laughs> um, okay, master plan. Yeah, we'll, we'll call you soon. Realizing <laughs> our statistics. <laughs> awesome. Um, the more Google Analytics accounts, the better, in my mind. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Master Plan World, you can find those top tips and links to everything else we've been chatting about in today's episode by heading over to ecommercemasterplan.com forward slash podcast, where you'll see a link to this show. Now, Greg, before we say goodbye, could you let the listeners know a bit more about Porchlight and where they can find you and your business on the web and social media, please? Absolutely. Um, they can go to porchlightatl.com and all of our social media, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram are at porchlightatl. Oh, nice and easy. Okay, I'll add links to all of those and everything else we talked about today in the show notes. Again, Masterplan World, you can find those at ecommercemasterplan.com forward slash podcast, or just go to the website, click on the podcast tab or use the search box. Greg, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. It's been brilliant diving into the fascinating world of product packaging with you. I hope the audience, I know the audience will have found it useful. So thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed that dive into a different area of the e-commerce puzzle. Um, I thought it was great. We dived into what your product packaging needs to do to appeal to the retailer, where it's physically going to sit, then what it needs to do to jump off the shelf into the customer's hands. And then, of course, the one which I think is relevant to every single one of you out there who is producing their own products, how that packaging impacts on the person when they receive it and when they get it into their home in order to help you get the repeat purchase. Plus a couple of really interesting trends there as well. So I hope that was a a bit of a difference from the norm, but one I hope you've enjoyed. What did you think though? Do um, do let me know in the Facebook group, the e-commerce masterplan world Facebook group that you can find via ecommercemasterplan.com forward slash Facebook. If you want to join the group, make sure you answer the questions or I probably won't let you in. Um, And all the only other thing I have to say to you all is have a great week and keep optimizing. Thank you for listening to the e-commerce master plan podcast. Find out more at ecommercemasterplan.com. <laughs>